few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Mike asked if I'd be willing to, to give a sermon. And I said, well, sure. Uh, what would you like me to talk about? And he said, well, we're in Luke chapter 22. And so here's the, here's the text I want you to preach out of. And he gave it to me. And I, you know, at first glance, I was like, well, isn't there more? I mean, it, that seems like it's a small amount of scripture. It's just a handful of verses. You know, I was thinking, well, maybe he doesn't want to overwhelm the, the youth pastor. But then, you know, I started examining the text. And that's one that, you know, most of us are aware of. I've read it many times, but after really reading it in such a way to, to teach on it, oh, I, I realize that a text's length cannot always determine its magnitude. This text this morning might be relatively short, but I think it's very weighty and forceful and powerful and something that we can learn from. Let's read this text together. It's Luke 22, 39 through 46. Luke 22, 39 through 46. Luke is recording um, what is going on with Jesus and the disciples right here. He says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and, and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you and just pause and give you glory and praise for what you've done. Holy Spirit, we invite you here today to speak to our hearts. We invite you to, to transform us, renew our hearts, renew our minds. Lord, we want to know you. We want to see you this morning. We want, we want to see you glorified. And Lord, I pray that, that we would, would grow in that love and grow in that knowledge and grow in our enjoyment of you. And that we would leave here and impact, impact Carney and impact this world for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's begin to, to dissect this awesome and intense um, text. Uh, the, the first point that I want to make right off the bat is that we need to realize that the prominent activity of our passage this morning is prayer. And when you study the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we can see that Jesus commanded his disciples to pray three times in this instance. Now, what were they to pray for specifically? Well, that they would not enter into temptation. Jesus is telling them, pray that you will resist temptation. Pray that you will have strength to fight temptation. Pray that you will not succumb and fall into temptation. 
I find it interesting that Jesus didn't tell his disciples, hey, pray that you're not tempted. He said, pray that you will resist temptation. You know, I've heard many Christians and, and some pastors, not on this staff, make claims that, hey, if you are even tempted to sin, then you're sinning. Just by being tempted, you're sinning. If, if, you're, if you feel this temp, temptation, you're sinning. Well, I don't think that that's a good biblical conclusion to come to. Because after all, the Bible is clear that Jesus was tempted. I mean, he was tempted by Satan himself. We can't even imagine the kind of temptation that Jesus experienced. And the Bible is also clear that Jesus lived a perfect, holy, and sinless life. He never sinned. So obviously, just because you're, temptation, you're, you're tempted doesn't mean that you're sinning. Now, it can easily lead to sin when you choose to act on these temptations in thought or deed, or when you choose to dwell on it, or when you choose to do it. But both are sin, according to Jesus. You know, we're, we're called to fight temptation. My favorite scripture, my favorite Bible verse is 2 Corinthians 10.5. And Paul says we destroy every argument against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Take your thoughts captive. Resist temptation. Jesus experienced temptation. He never sinned, but he did experience temptation. So Jesus knows what temptation is all about. He's experienced it. He knows that you and I are attacked by it every single day. And he knew his disciples were face to face with it that fateful night over 2,000 years ago. Jesus knows what temptation is like. And Jesus tells his disciples to pray to resist temptation through God's strength. This is done through prayer and much of it. We see after examining the Gospels, that Jesus spent what appears to be at least three agonizing hours in prayer. Well, the second point I'd like to make is that this is Jesus' final act before he's arrested, before he's tried, and eventually crucified. These are his last words of instruction to his disciples before he's arrested. Now, Typically, one's last words are of great importance. I think all of Jesus' words are of tremendous importance. But these specifically, I believe Jesus knew that these were his last words of instruction to his disciples. I think that they were very important for his disciples to hear then and very important for us to hear today. The third point that I'd like to make as we begin here is, is that I want you to notice the intensity of emotion that's recorded in this passage. You know, Luke tells us that the disciples are overcome by sorrow. And Matthew and Mark write that, Jews, that, Jesus, <laughs> that Jesus, I'm trying to combine Judas and Jesus, that's not, never a good thing. Um, Matthew and Mark say that Jesus is overcome with sorrow to the point of death. To the point of death. Never before have we seen Jesus so emotionally rocked to his core. Now think about this. I mean, Jesus has faced raging storms on the Sea of Galilee. Totally composed. He's faced 
demonic opposition and satanic temptation, all while keeping his cool. Well, not to mention he's constantly being grilled by the Pharisees. They're trying to catch him and, and trap him constantly. Never loses his cool. He's always under composure. But now, now something's different. Jesus casts himself to the ground. He's a wreck. Well, at least in the disciples' eyes. I mean, he appears to be sweating blood for crying out loud. The disciples have never seen this side of Jesus before. No one has. Put yourselves in the shoes of the disciples. Well, at least in their sandals. You put yourselves in the sandals of the disciples. And they're always used to seeing their Savior, the Messiah, totally calm, cool, collected, poised, strong. They're used to this Jesus. And now they see Jesus on the ground, sweating what appears to be blood. How would that affect you? If you were in their sandals. Let's talk about Jesus for a moment. The cross now looms large on the horizon for Jesus. It's, it's right around the corner. I believe Jesus knows this as the fathers revealed it to him. However, Jesus knowing that the cross is right around the corner, he, he presses on towards it. He doesn't, he doesn't shrink back. He presses on towards it, towards the cross, even here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke records that Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives in verse 39. Moreover, in, in the next verse, verse 40, uh, Luke tells us that Jesus and the disciples reached the place. You see, this was all a part of the plan. Now, Jesus seems to be somewhat elusive or secretive about the location of the Passover meal, but now he's completely open. Jesus is completely predictable about where he was going to be that night. This was the plan. This is the time for Jesus to be betrayed. It is the time for Jesus to be taken, but not by surprise. Now, once they reached the place, Jesus instructed his disciples to pray that they would not fall into temptation. Now, nowhere in this text or its parallels do I see Jesus praying for himself not to succumb to temptation because neither Jesus nor the plan of salvation were in any danger here. You see, this had been settled in eternity past. You see, before God said, let there be, before the foundations of the world, as Paul says, God knew with 100% certainty what would happen in this world. Before God created this world before God created Satan God knew that Satan would rebel God's omniscient he would know all things before God created this world and and Adam and Eve he knew that Adam and Eve would sin before God created this world and created Judas he he knew that that Judas would betray Jesus before God created this world God knew that Jesus would go to the cross. Before the foundations of this world, 
this was the plan. You see, Jesus is not God's plan B. It, it, it breaks my heart to hear many Christians make statements like this. In fact, I've heard pastors preach this, not on this staff, mind you, <laughs> but I have heard it. And, and they say things like, well, God created the world and it got a little crazy, kind of got out of, out of hand. God lost control. <laughs> oh, but God, God called in Jesus Hey, Jesus, get in here. Uh, my, my plan A failed. You're my plan B. Go hit a home run. Come do your thing. Oh, man, that's not good theology. It's not good doctrine. Now, Jesus did hit a home run, more like a grand slam. But Jesus was plan A all along. Now, this might raise some questions. I, I hope it does. Um, and if this is the type of thing that you like to think about, I love to think about stuff like this. It's really one of my passions is, is to think how this all works and can we connect these dots logically and things like that. And I love to do this because we can. Um, but if this is the type of thing that interests you, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this right now, but this is the kind of thing that we talk about in my Sunday, uh, Sunday school class. Um, we'll start it again on the Sunday mornings uh, this fall. It's a theological philosophy class, systematic theology, um, apologetics and just philosophy in, in general. So uh, love to have you if you're interested in things like that. But anyway, let's get back to the text. Three times Jesus commanded his disciples to pray that they would not fall into temptation. I believe Jesus is specifically referring to the disciples' inclination to resist the will of God, to resist God's plan A, to not trust and him, but to lean on their own understandings. Crazy disciples. Well, we never do that, right? I can relate to them. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, they had a hard time trusting in God, trusting Jesus. I mean, think about this. Peter, I mean, we've been studying this for, you know, recently. Peter actually rebuked Jesus. I mean, think about that. Um, the disciples, Pastor Tim Peterson talked about a couple weeks ago, the disciples were actually arguing about who the greatest amongst them would be. Like Peter had the guts to tell Jesus that he was wrong. And then poor Peter. <laughs> Peter drew the sword in an attempt to resist Jesus' arrest, to resist God's plan A, right? He drew the sword. I think that's coming next week. We're going to talk about that. But, man, Peter, we can pick on him all day long. I, uh, I bet he was so relieved when it was Thomas that uh, doubted the res resurrected Jesus, right? I bet Peter's like, whoa, thanks, Thomas. Yeah. Um, you take the heat for this one. I mean, poor Thomas. I mean, he makes one mistake, and now he's doubting Thomas, right? I mean, what about Peter? Peter's making all these mistakes over and over and over, and we don't give him any nicknames. I mean, he, he's the rock, right? And um, how come we don't call him arguing Peter or rejecting Peter or, you know, whatever? Um, <laughs> I can relate to Peter, I'll tell you that much. I, uh, you know, I, like to, I like to pick on Peter, but then I look in the mirror and realize, man, I'm worse than he is. Um, but, man, while I'm on this topic, let's... Let's think about Peter. He, he rejects Jesus here. I mean, he's famous or infamous for denying Jesus three times, right? Well, what's Jesus do after he's risen from the dead? 
And uh, he's on the beach and he calls his disciples uh, to come in from fishing. Jesus is already grilling some fish for him, making some breakfast for him. I love this picture of Jesus that we get in Scripture. But uh, what's he do with, with Peter? I mean, Peter, who just not long before this denied Jesus three times. And what does Jesus give him the opportunity to do? Affirm him three times. Peter, do you love me? And he answers, yes. Do you love me? He answers, yes. Do you love me? And he answers, yes. God is an awesome God of amazing love and amazing grace. And no matter how stupid we can be, which I'm the king of that, he gives us grace over and over again. He works all things out together for good for those that love him. Well, after Jesus told his disciples to pray for supernatural strength for themselves, Jesus went out and off from them, about a stone's throw, Luke tells us here, and, and he begins to pray for himself. And although we can surmise that he prayed for about three hours, I think we can sum it up in one verse here in 2242. I think we can sum it up with this. When Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What is Jesus praying for here? I mean, have you, I mean, I've read this hundreds of times and it just really hit me recently. What is he praying for here? Is Jesus trying to get out of going to the cross? He's saying, God, Father, take this from me. Please. Is he trying to change the Father's mind? Does the fate of all mankind hang in the balance here? Well, let me point out, first of all, that Jesus was not in danger of changing his mind. His mind was firmly committed to doing the Father's will no matter what it was. We see that when he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I'll do whatever it is that you want me to do. What an awesome model that he gives for us. But I do believe that Jesus here was simply trying to learn exactly what the Father's perfect plan was. Now, again, this might raise some questions. And it should. Because passages like this used to confuse me. I would lose countless hours of sleep. I, over the course of 10 years of studying things like this, um, I, I, really, I, would, I would literally lose sleep over things like this. Because... If Jesus is God, all right, Jesus is God, God knows all things, then Jesus knows all things, all right? If Jesus is God and God is omniscient, then Jesus is omniscient, right? Well, yeah, but man, how do we make sense of this with some of the things that Jesus says and even what he's praying for here? Now, I want to I offer a way that um, I think can help us make sense. This is just one uh, model, I guess, one way of trying to make sense of the 100% divinity of Jesus and the 100% humanity of Jesus. Well, we affirm that God is full, or that Jesus is fully God and that Jesus is fully man. 
Now here's one way to try to make sense of this. There's others, but this is my favorite. You don't have to agree with this, but um, this is going to be my thesis. That Jesus was omniscient in his divine subconsciousness. However, in his human nature, he was not aware of everything he knew about everything. Hanging with me? Okay. The Bible is clear. It says this, that Jesus grew in knowledge and stature. He was not aware of some things. He gained awareness of them. He grew in knowledge. The Bible also says that Jesus was not aware of the date of his return. The disciples are asking him, Jesus, when are you coming back? And he's like, I don't know. Only the Father knows. Well, yeah, but Jesus is God. So he's omniscient. So he has to know these things. These things used to drive me crazy. How do we make sense of this? Now, atheists and and Muslims use this all the time to refute Christianity. In fact, I'll tell you what. I have a passion for evangelism. I have a passion to reach the lost. And, and And just a desire to reach people outside of the walls of the church. And inside the walls, too. Obviously, since I'm here this morning, but but uh, I have a passion to reach those that don't know Jesus and that have real questions and objections. And I think as an evangelist, we need to be able to interact with their real questions and respect them by answering them. And this is one of the things that atheists and Muslims use all the time to try to show that Christianity is logically incoherent and therefore false. But I think they haven't presented the case accurately. They will, say, you, they will say that Christians claim that Jesus is God and they claim that God is omniscient. Well, here we see that Jesus isn't omniscient, therefore he's not God. And, if he, and then they'll say things like, well, and if he stops having some properties of God or attributes of God, then he stopped being God and then your atonement and, and the cross is meaningless. All right, so how do we deal with this? Well, I've, I've got three things that have worked great, um, three analogies that have really Um, pave the way to have some great conversations and to help them see that this is not logically incoherent at all. So let me offer three things to you. One, there's a condition called blind sight, a medical condition. Has anybody ever heard of that before? Um, Not a lot of people have. And I've been studying it recently. But according to what I've learned so far, it seems like if a person has blind sight, they could be on this side of the stage and maybe we could move this grand piano over here and put it right in the middle. And I could be over here on this side. And I could talk to my friend with this condition and I could say, do you see anything in front of you? And they, they would say no. And I would say, do you see a piano in front of you? And they would say no. And I would say, well, come over here and shake my hand. And they would walk and walk around the piano, not stubbing their toes, and come over to me and shake my hand. And I said, did you see the piano? And they, they would say there was no piano. Now, they saw the piano. They didn't stub their toes. But they were not aware of the knowledge they had of the piano. This is a real documented condition. Another is hypnotism. Now, I think hypnotism is horrible. I think we're created in the image of God so that we can make rational and moral decisions to approximate to him. And when you give the ability that you have to make rational and moral decisions up to somebody else, you are not sober-minded. 
the scripture is clear that we are to be sober-minded because our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So those of you in high school, if you're going to a post-prom party and there's a hypnotist there, don't do it. Now, with that being said, some people get hypnotized. So this is my analogy. Um, When somebody gets hypnotized, which is bad, um, they can learn things in that state and then be told that when they come out of the state that they won't be aware of it anymore. So they have the knowledge of these things, and when they come out, they still have the knowledge, but they're not aware of that knowledge. Now, I'm not saying Jesus was hypnotized by any means, but I offer these when I deal with culture because these are real questions that are going to come up in, in evangelistic scenarios. These are real questions that if you're sharing the gospel, people are going to ask you. I get asked this many times. And when we can say, here's one way to, to see that it's possible to know things without having awareness of it. Therefore, there's no incoherency to say that Jesus was completely omniscient, even though he wasn't aware of everything he knew about everything. Maybe you don't like those examples. Here's another one. My son is working on his multiplication facts right now. So we've got these flashcards, and there's, there's Spider-Man flashcards too, which make them even cooler, because math needs all the help it can get. But... Um, uh, how many of you know your multiplication table fairly well? Let's say up to 12. How many of you know multiplication table up to 12 fairly well? I'm not going to pick on you or make you come up here, but raise your hand if you know it um, fairly well. All right. And we got some of you are a little hesitant to raise your hand, but yeah, um, when I said I'm not going to bring you up here, I saw more hands go up. So, um, so I'm just going to ask you a few questions. Again, not going to bring you up here, but when you feel like you know the answer, and don't cheat, don't just raise your hand right away, but when you know the answer to the question, raise your hand for me, just so I can see um, how we're doing. All right, first one, eight times six, who knows it? Raise your hand if you know it. All right, good. Um, Six times nine. You can keep them up. Still see some hands going up, yeah. Okay, good. Four times six. Keep them up for me. Still see some going up. Good. Yeah, it's all right to think it through. All right, good, good. Um, Nine times seven. You guys were fast on that one. All right, good job. Uh, Last one. This is toughest. Four times one. All right. We should have everybody's hands up on that one. Come on. Um, all right, well, one thing I found very interesting there, and you guys did, did perfect, was some of you were able to answer it like a split second. Some of you took maybe one second. Some of you were taking two or three. I saw some go up maybe five seconds afterwards. Well, that's a great illustration to show that you know a lot of things, in particular the multiplication table up to 12, but you don't have immediate access or awareness of everything you know. You went into your subconscious and got this information. It, takes, it might take a half second. It might take five seconds. But you went to retrieve it. Now, you know a lot of things. Since you were a baby, you've been taking in information. You've been learning, gaining knowledge. Are you aware right now of everything you know? Of all the knowledge that you've gained and accrued over the course of your life at this very moment, are you aware of it? Of course not. If you were, you wouldn't be listening to me very well. And secondly, I think you'd be going crazy. Um, So we know so many things that we're not even aware of. In in school right now, working on 
on a, my master's degree, I can write a paper and then a few months later go back to it and think, wow, I wrote that? I mean, <laughs> I forgot that I even knew that. Um, so we offer these as illustrations that I found quite helpful when I'm dealing with non-believers, especially on the UNK campus. And, and even online, I've had uh, talks with, with Muslims on the other side of the world just on Facebook. And this very question has come up, and, and these illustrations have helped them see that we can logically and coherently state that Jesus was God, and therefore he was omniscient, but he could still learn and grow in knowledge as the Father would reveal things to him. And you know what? The Father and the Holy Spirit re reveal things to us as well, and we can learn that way. All right, getting back to the text. Jesus was always, here's my point with all of that. Jesus was always 100% committed to do the Father's will. And I believe here that Jesus was simply asking his Father if there was another possible way besides the cross. Now, was there another way besides the cross? No. But I believe in Jesus' human nature. He was, he was asking. It was a real question for him even though in his divine subconsciousness he knew it. Now, was there another way besides the cross? No. And Pastor Mike has also asked me in a few weeks, I believe it's August 24th, I could have my date wrong, but it's around that time period, I'm going to be speaking again on a Sunday morning about why the cross was necessary. Could there have been another way to achieve the salvation of mankind and to secure it? Could there have been another way? We'll come back for that. But just, you know, side note, this just makes me think of this. That the creator of the universe, the creator of flesh and blood, became flesh and blood to save our flesh and blood by tearing his flesh and spilling his blood so that we could know him and be loved by him and enjoy a personal relationship with him for all eternity. He did that. That is amazing grace. Amazing love that I can't comprehend. Back to Jesus' prayer. We see that he greatly dreaded something called the cup. <clears throat> what is this cup? Well, if we have the scripture, let's put it on the big screen. I don't know if we do. But uh, I've provided four um, different passages of scripture. Um, yeah, there we go. Psalm 75, Jeremiah 25, Isaiah 51, and Revelation 14. Think of also, um, put this into your small group study notes. So I encourage you to look through this as a small group or even by yourself this next week as, you, as you're studying God's word. But I'm not going to get into the, all the details and read all those verses now because I need to save some time. But let me tell you this about the cup of God's wrath and why Jesus didn't want it. He's asking his father, hey, can you take this cup from me? And let me tell you why, because this is the cup of God's wrath poured out onto sinners. It's the cup of God's wrath poured on the unrighteous. It's the cup which was foretold in the Old Testament, and this is the cup that was prophesied in the New Testament in the book of Revelation. This is the cup that begins with the great tribulation, and this is the cup that endures throughout infinite eternity. This is the cup which our Lord dreaded drinking from, and this is the cup of torment, of separation from the Father. This is the cup of separation from the creator of the universe. This is hell. Separation 
from God. That's what hell is. That is far worse than anything, any, maybe any of the medieval paintings of their, you know, the, the fire and demons with pitchforks and torture racks. <laughs> Separation from the Father. Separation from the creator of the universe, from your creator, is hell. Now, I do not believe that Jesus literally went down into hell. There's some famous creeds and some churches that state that. I think that's bad Bible doctrine. However, with that said, I, I believe that Jesus did experience what hell was like for three hours on the cross. Separation from the Father. He's on the cross crying out to God, why have you forsaken me? Why? He felt that separation. Imagine this. I mean, I think this is why in Matthew 26, 37, and 38 says that Jesus, even in the garden, is sorrowful to the point of death because he had an idea of what was going to happen. He was going to be separated or feel separation from his father. The cross represented a sense of separation from his father, from the Trinity, one that has never been known from eternity past. Think about that. From even before God created time and space, Jesus has been in this perfect love relationship with his Father in the Trinity. And he has known nothing but perfect love and intimacy. And then he sees it on the cross. He's going to be separated from that. That is supernatural suffering. One that we can't even begin to comprehend supernatural suffering which is far worse than any physical pain that he could suffer on the cross which is bad enough on its own i try to comprehend this what must this be like to never know anything but perfect love and then to experience separation from that we can't experience that we can't imagine i i tried to jesus gave analogies and, and parables all the time to to help us finite Creatures try to understand just a little bit. So I try to do the same thing. My analogies are never as good as Jesus's. But um, here's one where, you now I was thinking about this this last week and, and how could I even begin to, to relate to what Jesus might have felt even if I could just relate just a little bit. And I thought, well, what if we could imagine being raised by just a perfect, loving family, the best parents possible, and never knowing anything but love and grace and protection Let's say that you experienced that for 10 or 11 years, knowing nothing but perfect love and grace and protection. <laughs> Paradise. And then one day, they drop you off at a house to get tortured physically. And they drive off. Now that physical torture would be bad, but to me, I think the mental anguish would be much worse. Why have you forsaken me, mom and dad? Why, why, why am I here? Why did you leave me here? 
Now that analogy probably falls way short. It does fall way short, but I just try to just understand just a little bit of what Jesus went through for you and me. Supernatural suffering, worse than the physical suffering that he went through. He went through physical and supernatural suffering for me and for you too. Oh, this was agony. And Talk about agony. Jesus was in the midst of it, just thinking about what he was going to experience on the cross while he was st- still in the garden. Now, if you didn't know, Luke, the author of this account, was also a doctor, and he states that sorrow was the cause of the disciples' drowsiness. Now, the disciples had a little bit of knowledge, and they were depressed. It brought them to, to slumber. Jesus, on the other hand, had great knowledge. Imagine the agony he was going through. Because Luke also tells us that Jesus' agony was so great that it was like great drops of blood falling to the ground. You know, I think it's very possible that Jesus could have been actually sweating blood. Now, Luke does say that his Sweat was like great drops of blood, so maybe it wasn't really blood, but did you know that there's actually a real documented medical condition in which people, when they experience this extreme suffering and agony, it's been documented that some people on the rare occasion actually do sweat blood. So Luke doesn't leave it to our imaginations. Whether it was like blood or it was blood, it was bad. And Jesus was in agony. And I think it's very possible that Jesus' agony and sorrow was so great that he was virtually at the point of death. And I think that's why we see here in the text that there is supernatural sustenance brought by an angel from heaven. And we see that this angel strengthened Jesus so that he could continue in his prayer. His night of agonizing prayer. And then Luke tells us in twenty two forty four that he, he continued in prayer even more earnestly. Jesus was strengthened to pray and to pray harder. Huh. You know, have you ever asked for the supernatural strength to pray harder? Never really thought about that until I was preparing this talk. And then I started examining my life, have I ever done that? Even if I've never really thought about it, have I done it? And I realized there was a time, a little over 10 years ago, in which I was really dealing with depression and sorrow. So much so that I didn't even feel like I could pray. I wouldn't want to wake up in the morning. When I finally did, this was my prayer. Help. Help. One word. He, he heard it. He helped me. And you know, that led to some of the best times of prayer that I've ever had. In fact, I look back on this, the hardest times of my life, the most sorrow-filled, the most depressing times of my life, and I look back when I said help, and he answered, and I looked at how that even transformed my prayer life. Even though I would never want to go back to experiencing times like that, I look back at those moments, and I cherish them. I cherish those times with my father because he actually gave me the help to pray and to pray harder and, and to listen to him and to commune with him and to fellowship with him. 
That supernatural strength is available to you. It's available to all of us. You might not feel like praying, but ask for help to pray and to pray harder. Ask him to work in your life through his strength. That was the best prayer I've ever said. Well, let's look at the last two verses of, verses of this short passage in 45 and 46. We see the disciples are supposed to be alert, watching and praying, but Jesus finds them not doing any of that, but sleeping. And Luke alone tells us that their sleep was due to sorrow. It was induced by depression. It's not because they were just physically fatigued. It wasn't because they just had a long night. It wasn't because they were apathetic. That's what I used to think about the disciples. They were just apathetic guys that didn't really care. No, I think now, I think they did want to be alert. I think they did want to be praying. But like Mark 14, 38 says, the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. However, that, with that being said, the human weakness of the disciples does not excuse their failure because after all, the supernatural strength available to them was there and they were failing to ask for it. Therefore, Jesus gave his final rebuke in verse 46. They were urged one last time to wake up, watch out, and pray. However, now it was too late Judas has now showed up with a bunch of heavily armed guards coming after Jesus like he was a dangerous criminal. It was too late for them, but it's not too late for us. Let me wrap this up in conclusion. just want to say a few short things. This passage might be short, but it's heavy. It's forceful, it's powerful. I feel kind of emotionally beat up just by studying it and thinking through it deeply and teaching it. It kind of wears me out emotionally. But let's consider some of the implications and applications of this text. I want to give you some takeaways. We can go talk about it over lunch or in your small groups. Four things. One, I want you to consider the fact that Jesus didn't just suffer physical agony, but supernatural agony too. You and I could be crucified. You and I could go through the same physical torture that he went through, but we could never experience the supernatural suffering that he went through. I want you to, I mean, think about how bad his physical suffering was, but think about the ultimate suffering that, that supernatural suffering brings. He did this for you and for me because he loves us. Two, the agony Jesus experienced in Gethsemane and the suffering he was about to experience on the cross is in direct relation to the agony and suffering that unrepentant people will experience in hell as they drink of the cup of God's wrath. Remember, hell is separation from God. And there's nothing worse, being separated from God and all that is good. Three, the measure of Jesus' agony at Gethsemane is the measure of the love of God for sinners. His love for you and me, his amazing love, his amazing grace that we're about to sing about. I want you to think about this as we sing this last song. Think about his amazing love and his amazing grace. This amazing love 
It compelled the second person of the Trinity to voluntarily pursue the path of pain, which led to the cross, which led to our salvation for those of us that know and love him. And the last point, finally, uh, point four, let us be reminded when we read this, this passage of the tremendous power of prayer. Prayer in this instance did not let Jesus escape from suffering or agony, but it did get him through it in a powerful way. Prayer is one of God's primary provisions to get through adversity, to get through suffering, to get through depression, to get through this crazy thing we call life. God's given us prayer to access him, the same power that created the universe, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that we have access to through prayer. And how many of us struggle to pray? How many of us take it for granted? Huh. I struggle with it. Well, Jesus commands to his disciples over 2,000 years ago apply to us today. Pray that you will not enter into temptation. Let's pray now. Jesus, it's just it blows my mind just reading about what you did for us. <clears throat> the creator of the universe. You didn't need us. You didn't need to create us. But out of grace and love for us, you did. So that we could know you and experience you for eternity. It's amazing grace that you, that you would suffer and go through agony So that we could know you? I can't fathom this, Lord. I can't fathom it, but every time I get just a little glimpse of it, it blows me away. Lord, I just pray for me and for everybody here that we would just grow in our, our knowledge of you and our love for you and our enjoyment of you as you just pour your grace and love on us. Lord, we want nothing else but your glory. And I pray that you would use us to help this world see how much you love them. In Jesus' name, amen.